Welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here as always with my friend and comrade Derek Davison, and we are excited to bring you the news. And uh, Derek, let's start off uh, on a really. Dip- you should probably wait until you find out what the news is before you say that. But I'm yeah, just- I mean, it, we're going to start dark today, so uh, yeah, let's talk about this uh, really exciting new study on uh, yeah during Arctic so- ice. <laughs> New research that was published uh, in uh, uh, the journal Nature Communications finds that um, the Arctic uh, is going to be more or less free of summer ice altogether, uh, at least in any large patches, uh, as soon as next the next decade. Oh, hell yeah. Let's buy real estate, uh, man. New real estate. They are making more of it, it turns out. And this is under, I believe, both the kind of humanity loses its mind and just starts burning coal for for the hell of it scenario and under the we basically just keep doing what we're we've been doing scenario there's not much difference previously there had been projections that the arctic would be ice free and they they go by september since that's the end of the uh the summer season so they they look at the the ice melt over the course of the summer the previously the estimate had been like mid-century, maybe 2060s or, or, or 2070s even, but now we're looking at the 2030s probably. They they make allowance in the study for the possibility that humanity might immediately enact very steep emissions cuts. We all know that's not going to happen. Uh, so basically, what this s- says is that this is locked in now. That that there's n- not really any way to avoid this outcome. Uh, what well, is but Derek, concern, I've been using paper straws. Well, okay. I, I, I don't, maybe they didn't know that, Danny. I mean, you know, you could, you should email, I think it was the IPCC <laughs> and, and let them know. The, uh, aside from the obvious ecological impacts on, you know, wildlife and habitats and human societies in the Arctic, uh, aside from the geostrategic issues, which are basically that uh, everyone's going to continue going nuts trying to claim navigation routes and trying to dig up all the fossil fuels, ironically, uh, that will be made more accessible because the Arctic is melting. What is also of concern here is that this is a, a feedback loop. Sea ice reflects solar radiation back into space when there's less of it or none of it. Uh, that radiation is instead absorbed by the oceans, which in this particular part of the world can lead to some even more uh, undesirable impacts like heating up the waters around Greenland, which whose ice sheet is mostly over land, uh, and therefore when it melts into the ocean will be a major driver of sea level rise. Uh, so that's just one of the the many things that could be the result of this. Well, I don't see any problems. I think we should just keep on doing what we're doing, and uh, consumption is fine. I agree. I mean, you know. 
just, yeah, no, just, just keep a, on keeping on. Yeah, yeah. Gr- growth is good. Consumption is cool. <laughs> uh, all right. Let's talk. Sadly, neither of us are in New York, which means we don't really matter. But let's talk about this anyway, which is the Canadian wild. I'm still getting affected by it. Yeah, you so are getting a little bit. So, be clear. Yeah, all right. Uh, let's DC, do it. Is, DC is now in the line of fire as well in Northern Virginia as a result. We got the dark purple like don't go outside for any reason warning today on the air quality index. So uh, not great. Um, yeah. As you, as you say, there is a cloud of smoke uh, covering much of the Eastern United States and much of Canada. Thanks to just a, and a huge epidemic of, of wildfires sweeping across Canada. The estimate I saw was about 3.3 million hectares uh, of wild uh, of forest had been affected as of Sunday, so that you know here we are Thursday. I'm sure it's much higher than that now. They had counted, I think, uh, over 400 currently active wildfires. About 250 of them considered to be out of control uh, at present. And of course, this is again kind of kind of cause caused by and will affect climate change in that this is the product of. Hot weather, dry weather, making conditions ideal for burning, even in eastern, the eastern Canadian forests, which tend to be relatively safe from wildfires. Uh, even conditions there are uh, apparently optimal for this sort of thing. Um, and of course, the fires themselves then spew uh, all, all manner of uh, carbon into the atmosphere and, and just uh, are, are, you know, another feedback loop. Yeah, so this is like really a week of showing how fucked we are with climate change, and if we don't do anything, I would say yeah, yes, I would say yes. That's a, that's a good way to put it. And so that's why everyone has to subscribe to American Prestige before we're either burnt out or underwater. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I'm not look. I'm not going to be able to get on the the shuttle to Mars if I can't show some. Uh, that's true. Some steady income to <laughs> so Elon. If you and care company, about a so, climate. Yeah. Subscribe to American Prestige. That is our new slogan. Uh, all right, Derek, let's talk about Blinken and his visit to Saudi Arabia. There's been a lot of uh, churn in the U.S.-Saudi relationship, but uh, yeah, we start this with uh, Anthony Blinken's visit to Saudi Arabia uh, on Tuesday. Uh, he and uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman met, I assume he passed uh, MBS a note that said, do you like us? Yes or no? Please circle one. Uh, who knows? I don't know if he circled yes or no. But, you know, this is another attempt, obviously, from the Biden administration to uh, show the Saudis that we care, we're here, we're listening, uh, we want to, to be friends. In the meantime, though, uh, the Saudi government has been doing some interesting things like Cutting oil production again. On Sunday, they announced uh, that they were cutting 1 million barrels per day uh, for the month of July in an effort to try to tick global oil prices back up toward the $80 to $90 a barrel range, uh, at least. Uh, They're in the 70s at this point and have been kind of steadily uh, in fits and starts coming down. Uh, so the Saudis are cutting uh, unilaterally, I should say. Sunday was a, another monthly meeting. It was the regular monthly meeting of the OPEC Plus group. Uh, there's been some reports of, of a little bit of discord within that group that the Saudis and the Russians are not seeing eye to eye anymore. The Saudis uh, obviously wanting additional cuts and the Russians 
not only not wanting additional cuts, but having not really implemented the cuts they promised to make earlier this year. Uh, so the Saudis, I guess, decided to go it alone uh, and uh, presumably couldn't get the rest of the gang on board. So they've decided to cut unilaterally uh, a, a million barrels per day. And of course, the Biden administration doesn't like this kind of stuff because uh, it tends to send gas prices up, at least uh, in the short term. Um, the Saudis also welcomed uh, Nicolas Maduro, the president of Venezuela, to the kingdom on Monday. They discussed a number of things and a uh, number of deals. I don't think they signed anything binding with him. But, um, you know, again, I think you can view this as uh, of a piece with the Saudis um, making up with Iran, uh, which, by the way, the Iranian government has now reopened its uh, Saudi embassy in, in Riyadh and its consulate in Jeddah. So that that uh, rapprochement is on track uh, with the Saudis also re-engaging Bashar al-Assad in Syria. They have their own reasons for doing all these things, obviously. Um, in, in, in Maduro's case, I think some of it may be to kind of uh, pry a, a, a little bit of daylight between the Venezuelans and the Iranians. Um, but it's also a, a clear... You know, signal to the U.S. that we have our own foreign policy and we're not functioning as your proxies. So that's of note. I would say on the other side of the ledger, and I've seen some some analysts talking about improvements in the U.S.-Saudi relationship. Uh, Blinken's visit is probably one indication, but also there is the mediation effort that the U.S. and Saudis have been engaged in in Sudan, which we will talk about Sudan in a uh, a minute here, but. That's failed, mostly. The mediation effort has failed. There's obviously you know, no ceasefire or peace plan to speak of in that country. But the fact that they're working together uh, on an issue of shared interest does suggest that, that the relationship is patching up a little bit, at least in some areas. Thanks, Derek. Uh, why don't you give us an update on Sudan? So, yes, uh, there was a maybe positive update this week. The Sudanese military and the Rapid Support Forces reportedly agreed to resume the ceasefire talks that collapsed uh, a couple of weeks ago with the U.S. and Saudi mediators in Jeddah. I don't think they're talking directly at this point. The, the reports I saw mentioned indirect talks. There's certainly no reason to expect that there's going to be some major breakthrough or anything, but but having a line of communication open, even if it's indirect, an indirect line of communication is preferable to having them not talk at all. Uh, and you may see some, you know, again, some efforts toward a ceasefire at some point. Uh, you know, who's to say? Uh, there's been a, a good deal of activity in Khartoum uh, and around Khartoum the last few days. Uh, the RSF seems to be making a fair amount of progress. And the pattern here is mostly that the RSF is winning the war on the ground. The Sudanese military is not all that capable. The RSF is, is more battle hardened, if you will, from basically from massacring people in Darfur, if you want to get to the bottom line of it, but, but from fighting in Darfur against, you know, a non Arab militias and other groups like that. So they've got more combat experience and they seem to be putting that to use on the ground. The the military does still have a huge advantage in terms of air power, which the RSF just has none. Uh, and so the pattern seems to be the RSF kind of gains some ground, it gains some territory from the military in the city, and then RSF fighters retreat to whatever structures they can find, people's homes. Uh, they occupied the, the Sudanese National Museum, 
uh, other, you know, other buildings and kind of wait out the inevitable retaliatory airstrikes. Uh, they're currently fighting over a very large military complex in the southern part of the city, uh, which contains a fair amount of armaments, ammunition, fuel, uh, that sort of thing. And on, on uh, Wednesday, uh, there were reports of a major fire having broken out on that site, probably an airstrike igniting one of the fuel depots, but I, I don't know that for a fact. So that's ongoing. There is also continued fighting in Darfur, although it's harder to get a sense of just how much is going on there. The New York Times did a piece where, uh, that involved interviews with people who have fled the fighting into Chad. You know, there are almost, I think, 400,000 people at this point have fled uh, Darfur uh, because of the fighting. And, and they report a lot of very heavy um, fighting between these non-Arab militias and Arab militias that are aligned with the RSF and a lot of violence against civilians in particular. Thanks, Derek. And we'll keep you updated with Sudan. Uh, let's move on to Libya. Uh, a, just a brief update here, uh, maybe a, in a positive direction. The two governments in Libya, the one based in Tripoli and the one based in the east, have reportedly agreed on a legal framework for presidential and parliamentary elections. Now, they were supposed to hold presidential and parliamentary elections back in 2021, so they're a little overdue on this. But it still is progress. They haven't signed anything yet, but they've been negotiating for a couple of weeks in Morocco, and that seems to be where this apparent breakthrough happened. They haven't signed anything, and they haven't scheduled a date, which would come after that for uh, any elections. But um, you know, so I don't want to go too far into this, but it is potentially a, a, a hopeful sign from the standpoint of, of bringing some political stability to that country. Thanks, Derek. Uh, now let's talk a little bit about Ethiopia, what's going on there, re-human rights. There's a couple of developments in, in Ethiopia. One is there was a, a report from Human Rights Watch that accused the Ethiopian government and regional security forces from uh, the Amhara region of engaging in what they're calling a campaign of ethnic cleansing against Tigrayan civilians. Uh, this is in the region that is known as Western Tigray, which is disputed and has been for a long time between the Amhara and Tigray people. The claim from HRW is that despite the 2022 peace deal that ended the, the Ethiopian government's war against the Tigray People's Liberation Front, there is still a campaign of, among other things, arbitrary detention, forced expulsion uh, of Tigrayan civilians in this region. The Ethiopian officials denied that, that this is going on. They called the, the report distorted and misleading, criticized it for uh, a supposed lack of evidence. The other thing uh, to note, and this just happened uh, on Thursday, uh, as just before we recorded, USAID, the uh, US aid agency that has been distributing food to Ethiopia um, in the wake of the, the TPLF conflict and the just massive amounts of hunger and suffering going on in the Tigray region, announced that it was halting deliveries of food aid to Ethiopia. It cited the illegal diversion. It called it a widespread and coordinated campaign to uh, basically pilfer this aid and, and divert it to other places. So uh, I, I don't know what's going to come of this. I haven't even seen a response uh, from the Ethiopian government. But wh where USAID goes, other aid groups, private NGOs, uh, the UN World Food Program may follow them, uh, you know, with this news. So uh, that's also something to 
watch and certainly uh, not great for uh, for people in Tigray who badly, badly need humanitarian relief. Speaking of not great, why don't we give an update on Ukraine? Uh, yes, there's a couple of things, uh, as you say, not great. Uh, one is, of course, I'm sure people have heard on Tuesday night, I believe, the Nova Kahovka Dam, the hydroelectric dam on Ukraine's Dnipro River, burst, uh, sent a wall of water rushing downstream into the uh, kind of lower end of the Dnipro River in Kherson Oblast and then out to the Black Sea. There have been, uh, obviously, it's been a, a frenzy of kind of speculation about who might have done this. There are various scenarios. One still viable scenario, although I, 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 don't, I think this is unlikely, but one viable scenario is that the dam was neglected enough and maybe, you know, had suffered some damage during the conflict. Who knows? that it just kind of br- burst uh, on its own. But there have been reports of explosions at the scene. So, uh, you know, it's tending toward the, the direction of a deliberate act. Now, whether this was by the Ukrainians or by the Russians, uh, I, I, I would rather not get to try to speculate. Uh, both sides have accused the other. Uh, and there are rationales that you could concoct for either one. For the Ukrainians, the rationale would be that because of the geographic layout of the the river when it gets past the the, the Kakovka Dam, the effects would of the flooding were felt more strongly on the Russian controlled side. Uh, and people there have been people, you know, a lot of people have had to evacuate. There are reports of uh, people finding bodies in the floodwaters. That's you know, there's obviously at this point no way to assess how many people were killed or or displaced from this. On the Russian side, though, to to blow up the dam, if you think that the Ukrainians are eventually going to, uh, as part of their big counteroffensive, going to going to want to cross the river uh, at a point below the dam, then blowing up the dam makes some sense. It, it widens the river. It makes the crossing more difficult. So, uh, as I say, there are there are rationales here either way. Um, the effects uh, again hard to say. Uh, in terms of property damage or lives lost or displacement, uh, it is clear that th- they are significant. Uh, there are severe environmental implications from this uh, incident. The, the waters, as they came, the, uh, as they're coming down uh, the river, are carrying all sorts of uh, toxins, basically uh, fertilizer, or oil, you know, anything that they pick up along the way, uh, and that's all going to dump out into the Black Sea eventually. There's a, a big swath of Ukrainian farmland, uh, Ukraine being, of course, one of the, the world's real breadbaskets. Uh, there's a big swath of Ukrainian farmland that will be badly affected by this. There is a risk, a, a longer term, I think, risk to the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, which has a cooling pond, and the cooling pond is full. The, the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, says there's no immediate risk to the cooling pond. But as the cooling pond kind of dissipates, it is fed by water from the uh, Kokovka Reservoir, which now you know, essentially doesn't exist. Uh, so that is a potential problem. Uh, also, people in Crimea, the dam, the way the dam was structured, uh, it fed into, the, the reservoir fed into uh, a canal that, that was dug to, to feed, uh, I think it supplies about 85% of the fresh water to Crimea. That's now uh, uh, apparently not functioning as, as intended anymore either. Uh, so that's a, a, another major concern. 
Um, and what about the counteroffensive or planned counteroffensive? Yeah, so counteroffensive counter to be decided. <laughs> counteroffensive TBD. Uh, I'm seeing, and again, this is something that's just been reported on Thursday a little bit before we recorded. So uh, I don't have a, a ton to say on this, but I, there seems to be a, an emerging consensus, at least in the uh, elite. Western media, the Washington Post and New York Times is of the world, that the counteroffensive really began uh, overnight, that, that the Ukrainian forces uh, in the Zaporizhia region, Zaporizhia Oblast, uh, made a major uh, attempted breakthrough the Russian lines in that region. There have been claims all week uh, about uh, Ukrainian columns trying to get through Russian lines and the Russians have, have been claiming that they've uh, repulsed them, that they've thwarted these, these attempted attacks and killed thousands of Ukrainian soldiers or killed and wounded, I guess, thousands of Ukrainian soldiers. There's no indication as to whether this one, the, the Saporizhia offensive, if it indeed happened, how it, I, I haven't seen any indication as to how it's going. The other ones were around Bakhmut, which is in, of course, Donetsk. Uh, oblast and and again you know the russians have made some claims about very heavy ukrainian casualties there's no confirmation of that either so still i mean still in the dark here but i i would say it's looking like the counteroffensive has probably begun and maybe it's not going to be in just one play there's been a lot of attention on like you know where exactly is this counteroffensive going to happen maybe they're going to try to poke around in a, a bunch of different parts of the russian line uh and see what if they can make any kind of a breakthrough uh, in any one, and that'll that'll sort of become the focus. Uh, it, it, that may be what's going on. Thanks, Derek. Uh, let's talk a bit about Colombia. Yes, there's an open letter, and you can read about this at the Intercept. Uh, Ryan Grimm wrote uh, wrote it up on Wednesday. Uh, an open letter from a number of leftist political figures around the world, um, the head of the Workers' Party in Brazil, for example, uh, Rafael Correa, the former president of Ecuador, Jeremy Corbyn, uh, Jean-Luc Mélenchon from France, warning about a soft coup that is, they say, is underway in Colombia to get rid of, uh, or at least, you know, uh, render uh, powerless uh, President Gustavo Petro. Uh, now, this has a few different pieces, one of which is simply the fact that uh, the Colombian Congress is controlled by the opposition and hasn't allowed Petro to do much of anything in terms of advancing his domestic agenda. That's part of it. But there's also a number of scandals now, like swirling around Petro that seem to be, you know, just a little, maybe politically motivated. I don't, I don't know all the details of this stuff, but he's had a number of top aides implicated in a, a very strange scandal about using state, well, the way Grimm puts it, uh, they use state resources to surveil a nanny uh, that they suspected of having stolen money from them. You know, some of them, there's another, uh, there's been like releases of uh, audio recordings of, uh, you know, feuding between Petro's advisors and, you know, threats to release information that would be, I guess, damaging to Petro. I don't, I don't know exactly uh, what's going on here, but it all does seem like this swirl of half-baked political uh, stuff uh, around Petro that may be indica indicative of a, uh, a, a bigger effort to, as I say, either manufacture a reason for impeaching him or just to sort of kind of muzzle his presidency. 
And we here at AP only like things that are full baked. Absolutely. Uh, I should also note. I should also note on Colombia, there does seem to have been some progress in Petro's negotiations with the National Liberation Army or ELN. Uh, it was reported on Thursday that Petro was heading to Cuba to sign something. It wasn't clear at the time what. It now seems that that is a ceasefire, but the two sides have then have have subsequently delayed the signing to Friday. So he should be. Uh, going to Cuba on Friday to, uh, I guess, sign a ceasefire. This is a uh, long-awaited ELN is the uh, largest remaining rebel group in Colombia, and it would be a huge uh, development in Petro's effort to to kind of end Colombia's various armed conflicts if he's able to get a durable uh, ceasefire with these guys. Thanks, Derek. Uh, and let's conclude with a new Cold War update. And why don't we talk about maneuvers that have been going on in the Taiwan Strait? Uh, so this uh, happened on over the weekend. Uh, the U.S. Navy accused a Chinese vessel of executing unsafe maneuvers in the vicinity of a U.S. destroyer that was sailing through the Taiwan Strait on a uh, freedom of navigation, put that in quotes if you want, uh, mission. It was there along with a Canadian vessel. Uh, sailing, basically sailing through. It's a demonstration that uh, the U.S. regards these places as international waters, and, and you know feels entitled to uh, to sail there, despite Chinese claims to the contrary. The Chinese military uh, denied that there was any unsafe maneuvering going on, and defended kind of closely shadowing these the U.S. ship and accused the U.S. Uh, and the you know freedom of navigation mission of of actually provoking uh, a potential incident. The U.S. the Navy did release the U.S. Navy did release a video purporting to show this Chinese ship kind of cutting very closely across the bow of the U.S. destroyer. So uh, you know maybe uh, some unsafe stuff, but you know this is part and parcel of uh, the U.S. does these freedom of navigation missions all the time. China complains every time it does them. Uh, it does them in the Taiwan Strait. It does them in the South China Sea. It does them in other waters that China claims. They don't usually escalate to the point where they're accusing uh, each other of, uh, you know, almost ramming uh, each other's ships, which could lead to something uh, much more serious. Uh, so I, I, I thought it was worth mentioning. And uh, what did Fiji just do with regards to its law enforcement pact with the PRC? So uh, the Prime Minister of Fiji, uh, Sitiveni Rambuka, was in New Zealand this week uh, in part to negotiate a new defense pact uh, with New Zealand. While he was there, he told reporters uh, in Wellington that his government is reviewing a law enforcement cooperation agreement that Fiji and China reached back in 2011 uh, and went so far as to suggest that the agreement had been discontinued, though his his comments were a little vague. It seemed He seemed to suggest that um, it's been maybe suspended but could be reinstated after this review process uh, is over. Of course, you know, Listeners undoubtedly are aware that uh, Fiji and the rest of the South Pacific are the uh, physical front line these days of the new Cold War. And it's this uh, kind of battle to, to get uh, these island nations on side with either uh, the U.S., which I think you can consider New Zealand a proxy here for the U.S., or China. And uh, if Fiji's you know, making new defense deals with 
New Zealand, while it's reconsidering some of the deals it has in place with China, uh, that is certainly of note. Uh, Rambuka hasn't been prime minister for very long, but he does seem to be charting a more Western-aligned course uh, than uh, the previous prime minister, Fiji, Frank Bainimarama, you know, had been inclined to chart. So just something to, to pay attention to there. Thanks, Derek. And let's end on Cuban Missile Crisis 2.0. Yeah, so I mean, you know, terrifying news. Terrifying news from the Wall Street Journal. Cuba is apparently going to uh, be the new host of a secret, it's not secret anymore, I guess, Chinese spy base. This is the headline. Focusing on the U.S. Uh, Now, I wouldn't blame anybody uh, for immediately turning off the podcast and heading down to your bomb shelter. But uh, if you haven't done that yet, just be terrified. I mean, they're going to be listening to everything, uh, everything you say and do from Cuba, I guess. Uh, I, I really don't don't know. You know, I mean, I, it's it's plausible. It's certainly plausible. Cuba is and, and China have a, a, a relationship. Cuba needs money. China has it. China probably wants to put a listening station near the U.S. I'm sure the U.S. has plenty of listening stations around China. So I, I don't know. Uh, that How dare you? That is not the breaking American news exclusive coverage position. I think it is. <laughs> I would be embarrassed if the United States were not spying. No, but uh, you know that's our prestige. We're spying on everybody. So yeah, just something to another thing to be aware of. You know, obviously this is not quite as serious as the Cuban Missile Crisis, but it is going to be something that will probably be in the news for a while, and it'll be something that's cited next the next time Cuba's up for. Uh, I don't know, consideration to be removed from the state sponsors of terrorism list or something like that. So, yeah, something to, to, again, be aware of. Thank you, Derek. And thank you all for listening. We'll see you soon. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.